Well, church, good morning. It is, as we've been mentioning, the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is this time of expectation, a time of leading up to Christmas time, the arrival of Jesus. Now, I'm curious, I want to, to ask you to do something with me this morning. I want you to consider if you have some traditions, if you have some signs that Christmas is approaching in your family. Uh, for our family, this weekend, the sign that Christmas is coming is I hauled up the Christmas tree and all of the storage bins of, uh, I don't even know what's in all of those bins. It feels like a weightlifting you know, exercise to get all of the decorations up out of the basement. But I know uh, our house was doing this. My neighbors were doing this. We put up the decorations. We put up the lights. We brought out the displays of Christmas time. I'm curious, excuse me, in your family, what are the signs that Christmas is coming? Uh, what are the signs that, that you know it's almost here, the time of preparation has arrived? Um, in your row, if you're here with like family, if you're here with a really close friend, go ahead and talk. If you're online sitting on the couch, talk with your friends, your close family that are in your row about what your traditions might be. How do you mark that Christmas time is almost here? So talk about that amongst yourselves for a minute or two and then I'll share a couple more of mine with you in a second. Go ahead and do that for me. Before I share a couple of more signs that Christmas is coming in our family, we have a video for you that I'm going to reference a little bit later in my sermon. But guys, if you can show that video now, that would be great.
talk about Advent Conspiracy a little bit more in a moment, but speaking of stuff that I wanted to make sure that we caught before we move on, uh, next Sunday we'll have the, uh, the New Testament Bibles uh, that we can be uh, preparing to read through the New Testament with a few friends this next, uh, next year in 2021. So they're $5 a piece if you have uh, uh, some thoughts about that, or if you don't, begin to pray about who you might be able to read through the New Testament with. Um, I've shared with a couple of college students, um, Lisa put together this card that has some information about this emphasis that the church has for next year. Now these cards are like church trading cards. They're like baseball cards. You want to collect these and, and hold on to them and show them with your friends. And if somebody's missed, if they haven't been here for a few weeks, you know, oh, did you get the read the Bible playing card? Oh, I saw I have the Christmas playing card from last year. So hold on to that. One of the things that I think was interesting on the backside of this one talks about a study last year that said uh, 48% of evangelicals, people who would call themselves um, having decided to follow Jesus, are actually disengaged from the Bible. So half of Christians, half of people who would say, yeah, that's, I think that's what I am, are unengaged, disengaged from reading the Bible. And I don't know how you do that. Um, I wouldn't want a, a doctor who was disengaged from healthcare. I wouldn't want a, a dentist who was disengaged from knowing how to share, how do your teeth work. I want to know Christians who are engaged, who are connected with the Word of God where we know the most about Jesus. So look for that next week. Um, kind of curious, have you had a chance to talk with your, uh, the folks in your seat about your traditions, what leads you up to Christmas? And maybe some of yours are like mine. How many of you, maybe just raise your hand, if, like I said, this weekend the decorations came out and you've decorated your home or your apartment, your place, that marks that Christmas is on the way. Okay, some of you, many of you. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, that means, uh, Lisa and I were talking about this, we have some people my parents' age, some, some friends who have said, you know what, it's just too much work. When you get to be our age, it's too much work to get out the Christmas decorations. So if you didn't raise your hand, I'm assuming that you're just too old to get out the Christmas decorations. Now, some of you, it's not decorations, maybe it's food. To any of you, my grandmother, every Christmas season would make fudge. And so that was this marker that Christmas is almost here. Grandma's making fudge. Any of you have a tradition of making a particular food that leads up to Christmas time? Some of you, okay. How many of you have a, uh, a piece of clothing that you take out of the back of your closet? It's like an ugly Christmas sweater. Do any of you, like me, have some uh, Christmas t-shirts? These for our family, they mark that Christmas is here. Dad's got out the, the Christmas t-shirts. I've got Santa Claus and the Grinch and the Nutcracker. How many of you have a piece of clothing and the ugly Christmas sweater? Okay, a couple of you mark the arrival of Christmas with some piece of clothing. Okay, I like to start Sunday morning by getting some people on my side, but this morning I'm also going to make some enemies of some of you. Um, how many of you uh, have Christmas music? that marks the start of the Christmas season for you. I don't know when our kids started listening to Christmas music. I think it was a couple of months ago. So I've had a couple of months to mark the worst Christmas songs. And I'm just going to, I'm gonna speak as the expert. I'm the one who gets to declare, these are the worst three Christmas songs in all of Christmas music. Are you ready for them? Number three, in third place, moving towards the worst. In third place, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. That is the third worst.
Christmas song. The second worst Christmas song is Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. I'm usually a big fan of the Beatles. This time, Paul McCartney, second worst Christmas song. The worst Christmas song from me up front as the expert, I'm just going to declare it, the worst Christmas song is Last Christmas by Wham. That is the worst of all of the Christmas songs. Now, I've done a weird thing. I've said it out loud. Maybe in like 15 minutes, you're going to zone out of what I'm saying, and you're going to say, Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. Your mind is going to go to Last Christmas by Wham. So I'm sorry for that because it is the worst of all of the Christmas music. Now, some of these traditions, this is kind of silly. Some of these traditions are silly. Some of our Christmas traditions, some of the things that mark that Christmas is coming, that, that Christmas is about here, are silly. Some of them are precious to us. Uh, uh, watching my kids get out their, um, their Christmas ornaments that they made in preschool, and as the years have gone by, and they have the pictures of their photos in the middle, that they've, those are just kind of precious memories, and I, and I love those. Some of our Christmas traditions, like this little video has uh, kind of explained to us, are stressful. They, they bring this burden of, of shopping and activity. And, and this year, maybe it's not so much going, going, going to lots of places, but I'll tell you what, the Amazon uh, truck, the UPS truck, stops in front of my house. I feel like every single day, the guy brings some stuff. We had a mountain of presents in my office, and it feels kind of stressful. It's this marker of, have we spent too much? Have we done too much? Some of our traditions are, are great. Some of them are stressful but they all are pointing us towards the arrival of Christmas. I want to talk this morning some more about this idea of Advent or arrival. Advent is just a, the Latin word that means arrival. We watch for the Advent, the arrival of Jesus. But it's not just his arriving at Christmas time. There's actually three ways that we can think about Advent this morning. And the first one is Jesus arriving in human form at Christmas. But the second is that Jesus arrives in the human heart as Savior, that there is a, an Advent where Jesus comes into the human heart. And the third way of thinking about the arrival of Jesus is the understanding that Jesus will return, that he will come to earth a second time and he will rule and reign in power. So there's three ways that we can think about Advent, his arrival. Now I want you to imagine for a moment with me, if we're thinking about the arrival, the advent of Jesus, if I had somehow, you know, was able to show you, to tell you, you know, you moved backward in times 2,000 years ago and you were on the scene in the first century and someone says, the savior of the universe. You have 40 days to prepare, to watch for his arrival on this planet. How would you get ready for the arrival of Jesus? When you read in the gospels, uh, Mary and Joseph seem like they were barely ready for the arrival of Jesus. But if somehow you could put yourself in that time, in that place, how would you prepare for the arrival of Jesus? Would you prepare for his arrival kind of half-hearted, drag your feet in a distracted kind of manner? Or would you be serious? Would you be focused? Would you be passionate in preparing and watching for the arrival of the Savior of the universe? What about the second advent? If somehow you had this foresight, this foreknowledge into the lives of friends and family members, coworkers and classmates, and you knew that in a short amount of time, someone that you know will 
receive Jesus as Savior, that his advent in the human heart will come upon someone that you know, would you be watching for that? Would you be preparing for that? And if you were to prepare, would you do that in a half-hearted, kind of distracted way? Or would you be serious and passionate about watching for the arrival of Jesus in the heart of a friend or a family member that doesn't know him? And then, this is not very biblical. It's not at all. And we'll talk about that at the end of my sermon this morning. What if somehow you knew that Jesus was going to return? That you knew that he was coming again? And how would you prepare for his arrival? How would you prepare to meet Jesus in the air, to, to know him as uh, the one who will come to reign in power? How would you prepare for his advent at his return? Would you do that in a distracted way? Or would you do that in a way that's passionate and focused and with expectation. This morning, uh, the big idea that I want us to find in a prophecy, in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says, this is the king, this is the one who's coming, and this is what he's like. As we read through that, I want to try to answer a question this morning. How do we more passionately watch and prepare for the arrival of Jesus? How do we watch for his advent more passionately at Christmas time, in the human heart, and at his second coming? So this morning I want to try to do that. The first thing I'll do is look at Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to look at this probably most famous of the, the prophecies about the coming Jesus. We'll read Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 through 7. And the second thing that I want to do is look through some specific ways that we can answer the question of how. How do we more passionately look for Jesus at Christmas in the heart and at his return? So let's start by going to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Here's what the text has for us this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Yet the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah was inspired by God to record this prophecy about a savior in the late 700s BC. Now at that time, there was uh, an empire who was threatening God's people. They were um, at the, the gates and the people longed for an earthly king. They longed for an earthly king who would provide for them, who would protect them, who would show them the way. And Isaiah brings this unusual prophecy. And so as we read it, we read this prophecy through the lens of Jesus. And we see how Jesus has completed this prophecy from 700 years before 
the first century when Jesus was born. So let's look kind of verse by verse through Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we have this statement. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shown. There's a theme throughout Scripture, um, starting here and, and continued into the New Testament, of light and darkness. I think of the book of 1 John as a great place of, of continuing this theme of Jesus bringing light to the darkness. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes, but if we uh, walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So anyone who's willing to be washed clean by the sacrifice of Jesus for sin will be transformed from darkness into light. And in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In terms of Old Testament prophecy, there will be a king and he will bring you joy. That's a winning kind of prophecy. Uh, anyone would love to hear that this king will bring joy to the people. Now, this leader would bring joy that was greater than a record harvest. He would bring a joy that's greater than military victory. Now, the people who first heard Isaiah's words, they probably were thinking, we're satisfied if we just have a record harvest, if we just have a battlefield victory. But we know that Jesus brings a joy that's greater than the harvest, greater than the victory, the joy in relationship with Jesus. It stands up, it stands strong in our hearts, even when the harvest is meek or we experience loss instead of victory. So there's a joy in fellowship with Jesus that endures even during times of conflict or lack. Verse 4, Isaiah says in verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The, the burdens of heavy labor, the abuses of the people's oppressors would be thrown off by this coming leader, like on the day of Midian. Now, Midian is a, a reference to a place. Midian is the place where Gideon had his great victory. And if you know the story of Gideon, God asked Gideon to stack the deck against himself in conflict so that God could show himself great in weakness. Looking at this prophecy back through Jesus, we understand well, what's the, the greatest weakness that you could stack the deck against yourself? Well, Jesus endures the greatest weakness, the weakness of death. Um, he endures the, the greatest sacrifice. And in his death, he shows himself to be mighty. God uses victory in weakness to throw off oppression, to throw off abuse in this final way. There's no greater victory than Jesus's victory over sin and death gave up his life in weakness so that the oppressed and the abused could find freedom. In verse 5, Isaiah says, uh, gives this instruction, every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The um, tools of war would be cast aside. Um, they're no longer needed under this coming leader. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm uh, 46, verses 8 through 10, expresses a, a similar theme. Uh, Psalm 46, 8 through 10 says this, Come and see what the Lord has done. 
the desolations that he's brought upon the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We can read Isaiah's prophecy and be uh, um, comforted that it is partially fulfilled in the human heart. There's no longer a a spiritual battle that uh, is up in the air. We know that there is a, a final victory in the spiritual battle. But even in our lives, we still see conflict. We still experience war. Um, we have to understand that we can look ahead to a time when Jesus will bring a final end to human conflict and warfare, a time when warfare will be made pointless for peace has come. Then look down at verse 6. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How could a child bear these um, marks of, of greatness? How could these titles of exaltation be placed on the shoulders of a child? Well, the only begotten Son of God, the Wonderful One, coming to live among the creation, mighty God, casting off power to become powerless, eternal Jesus becoming temporal, a child who brings peace to a world in conflict. Then verse 7, the end of Isaiah's prophecy, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Peace, justice, righteousness. When I think about justice, uh, so often I think that, that I desire justice for um, the bad guys. I think sometimes with like a, a childlike mentality. I want justice to be done and, and the bad guys out there somewhere to be punished. But I oftentimes don't think about, what about the bad guy who looks back at me in the mirror? I want grace and mercy for that guy, but justice for the the bad guys out in the world. You see, whoever could pay for the penalty of injustice. If God were to say, I desire justice, I desire righteousness, therefore all of the unjust will be required to pay, to, to reckon for their injustice, that would include all of us. We all would stand condemned before God if he was only zealous in his justice, but he's also zealous in his mercy, that he extends to us a mercy and a grace. And so Jesus stands as the one who takes all of the punishment for evil. He is the one that allows there to be both justice and mercy, that he takes our penalty. He takes the, the payment for our sin. He would be the one who brings peace to the human heart that endures forever. So Isaiah predicted a Savior that people would watch for who would bring light and joy and victory and peace. He would be both a son and our God. He would be zealous for justice and zealous for mercy. 
he would be the one who was the king of kings. So how do we watch and prepare for this kind of king? How do we watch and prepare with a greater level of passion? First, let's look at Christmas. Here's what I would say that the key to watching for Jesus at Christmas time means limiting what we do at Christmas. It means limiting our view. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think it means placing limits on the activity of Christmas so that we can watch for what really matters. This little video about the Advent conspiracy touches on this idea that we would worship fully, we would spend less, that we would give more, that we would love all people. Um, when I talk about the idea of finding more focus, more passion at Christmas time by limiting what we do at Christmas, some of us get a little bit uncomfortable with the language of limit. Um, in any of us, in anything in the, the modern world, in the Western world, if I say, oh, here's how you need to, to limit, here's a boundary, here's a, a budget, we don't like those kinds of words. We like limitlessness. We like to be without boundaries. We like to have um, excess. That's kind of how our, our culture works. But when we do that, that total freedom isn't at all free. We're sometimes paralyzed by total freedom. We're sometimes so distracted. Your phone is a good example of this. You can take out your, home, your phone and have all the information in the world. And we watch cat videos and when we do simple things, we're paralyzed by total freedom. But when we limit our view, we can find a focus on what really matters. Now, here's the problem. We want to feel like Christmas time is a special time. We want to, to have the freedom to celebrate. And so we will have uh, wrapped gifts and they uh, are stacked up under the tree. And sometimes the abundance of our gifts, the abundance of our celebration, it feels like a way of showing I can provide for my family. I can take care of things. Uh, life is a-okay because of these distractions wrapped up under the tree. Uh, as parents, as grandparents, Many gifts can sometimes take our minds off of the fact that not everything is okay, not everything is, is the way that it should be. And so instead of living that way, I think we have to all uh, agree. Like at church on Sunday morning, we would all agree that Jesus is the, the reason for the season. Um, a helpful phrase, right? But, but Jesus is the reason for all of life. Jesus is the reason that we uh, woke up this morning with life and breath. The, the reason we live and move and have a, even a existence is Jesus. And, and that is so easily forgotten. So how do we hold on to Jesus is the reason for Christmas and still celebrate, still keep some of those traditions? Well, I would say that we shift our mindset to find peace with some limits that we shift our thinking so that our, our hearts and our emotions and our behavior would follow along. So initially, we would want to, to push against those limitations, but let me give you some examples that might be really helpful for you. Consider placing this limit when you're giving gifts to your children or your grandchildren. One gift that they want, one gift that they need, one gift to wear, and one gift to read. I mean, it has to be right. It rhymes. There's some, some, something compelling to that. But limiting yourself to maybe four gifts that have significance instead of a mountain of gifts that could be easily forgotten. Another way that we might shift our thinking to placing some limits that are helpful would be to uh, give something 
that's less about consuming, less about buying, and more about uh, making a memory that really lasts. That you could give uh, art lessons or music lessons or a, a trip with a parent or a grandparent to some place that has meaning or significance. Maybe it's giving of your life to somebody else. I remember when I was about a middle schooler, there was a, a neighbor in our neighborhood who was going through a difficult time. And, and I have no idea what they were going through as a kid. My parents didn't tell me what was happening in the lives of those neighbors. My mom just told us, we're going to really bless these neighbors down the street. So we're going to make cookies. We're going to make some crafts. We're going to make some homemade gifts. And we're going to secretly leave them on the front porch and, and knock and, and surprise them. They won't even know who did it. And we'll bless them this Christmas. And so I remember that especially because my job as the oldest of all my siblings was to dress up in all black like a ninja and, and be the one who delivered the cookies, be the one who delivered the gifts and would knock on the door and ring the doorbell and disappear into the darkness. And I thought that was kind of cool. I remember that act of giving of our time and our resources to my neighbors. I remember that 30 years later. I have no idea what was underneath the Christmas tree on Christmas morning that year. I've forgotten if it was Legos. I've forgotten if it was a football. I have no idea what the gift was, but I remember the gift of giving to my neighbors. So we place limits. We increase the opportunities to give to other people and therefore focus in more passionately on the advent, the arrival of Jesus at Christmas time. Now, this second advent that I've alluded to is the arrival of Jesus in the human heart, that he would come into each human heart and, and begin to work and move. And so how do we watch more passionately for the advent, the arrival of Jesus in the lives of other people? And in this regard, we need to not limit, but we need to expand our expectation of what Jesus is doing. Let me give you some sense of how this works. Like You know the Advent is coming on the, the calendar, and you know that on December 25th, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. But how do we look for that in the lives of other people? The first point of explaining this might be like this. We live, we should live, with the expectation that God desires to save and is actively at work in every person that we interact with. Um, whether it's at work, at school, in your family, in your neighborhood, that we live with expectation that God is at work in my neighbor, Randy. God is at work in my classmate. God is at work with my coworker. He's doing a thing and that he might arrive in that heart. That should be our expectation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul instructs that we should pray for everyone from the, the, the top of the rulers to our, our next door neighbor, pray for everyone, Paul says. And then he says this, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. God is at work. He is at work in each person that we interact with and we should be at work as well. However the Spirit leads us, watching for that activity that we would participate in what God is doing. A second way of thinking about our role in the Advent, the coming of Jesus in human hearts is this. People need to see in our lives a display of the very best of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That, that Christian faith is lived out in the very best ways 
in your real life. So we look at the lives of other people and expect that God is at work, and we put on display the very best of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I want to give you an example, not of how I have gotten this right, but how a long time ago, in a moment, I got this wrong. And hopefully this is instructive for us. I want to share an example of how I got this wrong in a a brief interaction where I assumed God could not be at work and I have no responsibility to put him on display. As a a college student, um, about, you know, 20 years ago, I was in Kansas City and there is a, a Hare Krishna center in Kansas City. Now, Hare Krishna is, I couldn't get my clicker to work and see if it, if, if, uh, if my clicker would work, I'd show you a picture of some Hare Krishnas. Uh, Hare Krishna is a, a religion, it's based in Hinduism, and uh, Hare Krishna is the center in Kansas City, is kind of near the plaza. And so what you will see, at least back 20 years ago, you would see at the plaza some Hare Krishnas, and they're dressed in orange robes, and it is the practice of a Hare Krishna to, to sing out the name of their deity, Krishna. So they sing out Krishna, Krishna, and they, they dance, and they chant, and they sing songs, and they beat drums, and they play cymbals. Um, it, as a, an offshoot of Hinduism, they're vegetarians. So they sell vegetarian cookbooks and hand out information to tell you about their beliefs. And so I saw the Hare Krishnas on the sidewalk. And I was there with some friends from college. We went to the plaza to eat dinner together and go Christmas shopping and and look at the Christmas lights and just have a good time together. So we're walking down the sidewalk and there's this encounter, this interaction, a a showdown on the sidewalk. The, The Christian college students and the Hare Krishnas. And they're singing and dancing and chanting. And and as we approach one another, they shout out like a greeting to us. Hello, how are you doing? And my response was knowing that this is an Eastern religion. I knew a little bit about it. And Christmas is soon uh, to arrive. I kind of shouted out back to them, well, a Merry Christ Mass to you. And that's kind of, I thought it was a a joke. I think I probably impressed my friends to, you know, uh, interact with them in, in that way. But to this day, I regret that interaction because of the way I weaponized the name Jesus. That in this interaction, um, Jesus was was not a name that would be proclaimed in, in grace or in love. In saying Mary Christ Mass, uh, the name Jesus Uh, We have to remember that this is a name that it will be proclaimed at one point in the future on the the lips of every person, man, woman, and child will say, Jesus, and either your knee will bow in worship or you will bow before the one who will be your judge. So the name of Jesus is that important. And so to, to throw out that name as like a joke, like I did, or as a curse, or even as a, a tool to, to win political points, or a, a way that you would, would speak of a defense of your cultural traditions. However, we could misuse the name of Jesus, misses the point of Christianity and the point of Advent, when we whisper the name Jesus, the Christ, the Chosen One, the Messiah. Our hearts should leap up inside of us with the desire to worship and the desire to reach out in grace to the people around us. Watching for Advent, the arrival of Jesus in the human heart, means that we live out resilient compassion. 
Now, that's a term I just made up, so I'll explain it to you. Resilient compassion means that we demonstrate love before a watching world. In person, on social media, it's a compassion that's not fragile. It's a compassion that's not brittle. It's a graceful witness on our part. It means that we're not easily insulted, we're not easily rejected, and we're not easily silenced. Watching for the arrival of, the, of Jesus in the human heart will mean that we are mightily concerned for our coworkers, for neighbors, for classmates, for strangers on the sidewalk, and that we look for how Jesus is at work and we demonstrate the very best of following Jesus before them. A third way that we look for Jesus the third advent would be that Jesus will arrive in this world at his second coming. Now, when I talk about watching for Jesus, his advent at, at his return at the second coming, I don't mean looking for clues in God's word for the exact day or hour that Jesus might return to rule and to reign. It's, it's not the, the point. It's certainly valid to study God's word, to know the scriptures and to be aware of what Scripture teaches about the return of Jesus, I would appeal to the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, verse 44, he says this, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. In that one verse, there's two truths in the short verse. Be ready for Jesus to return, and you don't know when it will be. So knowing that that's what Jesus said, we guard against the tendency to invest our lives in building human kingdoms here. Instead, we watch for his return. We live this life as people who are just passing through. Here's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 say. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we live this life as one who's just passing through. This is not our home. This is not the place where we are to be planted. We live here, and by here, I mean Emporia, Kansas, the United States, all of the earth, we live here as exiles, exiles in a foreign land. We don't conform to the norms of this place. We don't conform to the norms of this foreign land. We live with an expectation that we will go on to our true homes and that those around us will be prepared to understand this reality by watching our very lives. And one practical expression of this that's come to my mind recently. Uh, I have been wrestling with my growing old guy status. Now, what I mean by that is every day that goes by, I feel a little bit more like I saw my dad was when, when I was a kid. I have these aches and these pains. And, and here's one of the things that's added to my old guy status. Frequently, I sit down in my chair with a cup of coffee and my mind kind of wanders off. And you know where it lands? it lands on a consideration of what my retirement investments are doing. That to me seems like old guy status par excellence. I never cared about the S&P 500 or retirement investments until I got old. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I feel like that's what my dad was always doing. He was always aware of how that was functioning. Now, there's nothing wrong 
with planning for retirement or planning for the future. It's a wise and prudent thing to do. Proverbs seems to teach that pretty clearly. But here's the point for me and maybe for you as well. Every moment that I wonder, how much money am I making for my retirement? Building my safety and my security and my kingdom here. Is that balanced and offset by an urgency because this time is running out? The way I would think about it is that it's not significant exactly how much time is left until Jesus returns. Is it centuries? Is it hours? I don't know. I know you don't know, but what I know is there's a countdown clock. So I grabbed this clock, this like workout counter from my garage, and it says there's 18 minutes and 12 seconds left. I just pushed start, and here's what was left on it. The significance is not how much time is left. The significance is that there's a clock and it's running down. The significance in the advent of Jesus at his second coming is not when this will happen, but instead are we living with an understanding and expectation that Jesus will return. Part of what that means is this. If there is a countdown clock, there's a fact that time is running out. And what that means is that I can't take for granted that there will be a future opportunity to mend fences in relationships. I can't take for granted that someday I'll make things right with that person who's hurt me or I've hurt them. I can't take for granted that maybe someday I'll have an opportunity to talk about who Jesus is with my friend, with my family member. Maybe that will happen um, someday. We can't take for granted that a future generation of missionaries there, maybe there's a young person that someday they will become a missionary and they'll take the message of Jesus to those unreached places. I think what it means is there's a, an expectation of urgency, that it's my, uh, my hope, my dream, my responsibility to mend fences quickly, to share Jesus with urgency and boldness now, to not wait for the someday, because there is a countdown, there is a time when time will run Last 10% that I would leave with here, three questions. First question, have you experienced the arrival, the advent of Jesus in your own heart? As we move towards Christmas, as you've heard me talk about the arrival of Jesus in the heart, in talking about the, the second coming of Jesus, thinking back to what Isaiah says about this is the king who will come, a king who brings peace, a king who brings joy, a king who brings a, a hope that's everlasting. Do you know Jesus as your king? Do you know Jesus as the king who brings hope and peace and meaning to your life that lasts forever? Second question, are you looking for the work of Jesus in the hearts of others? Do you have the assumption, the expectation that as you interact with people at school, at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, Jesus is at work in that person. Is that your assumption and your expectation? Are you looking for the work of Jesus in the hearts of others? And then the last question. How would you live your life differently if the next 40 days, the 40 days that lead up to Christmas, if the next 40 days were your last 40 days? Maybe it's that Jesus were to return on Christmas Day and that you would meet Jesus in the air at his, his second coming. Maybe it's that you would meet Jesus if your life came to an end, if, if some circumstance brought an end to your life 
after this short season? What would you do differently over the course of the next 40 days? How would you live your life differently if your next 40 days were your last and then you were to meet with Jesus? I want to pray that these would be things, questions that would kind of bounce around in our hearts and our minds and that we'd respond to Jesus differently because of how he has been spoken of in his word. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you have seen fit to set this life, this universe up around yourself and the hope of a coming Savior. Father, I thank you that you um, had a plan of salvation in place for Jesus to take on human flesh, to be uh, born as a, a helpless infant, and then to live a perfect life that we can't live and die a death that we deserve. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray that you would change and, and be at work in our hearts to change us, to see how you're at work in the lives of every person that we interact with. Let us live with a hope and an expectation that we have a responsibility to, to look for your activity, to present to other people a, a resilient compassion and love that shows the best parts of following you and help us to see um, in the lives of our neighbors and friends and family and coworkers how you're at work. Father, I pray that you would set in our hearts an expectation, an urgency to live this life like time is running out, that we don't have forever to follow you, and that we would follow you passionately here and now in this very moment. Father, I pray that these ideas would, would shape our hearts and minds this Christmas season as we watch for your arrival. Amen. Well, if you have any questions about this, if this has been helpful to you, I'll be up front. You can come and share with me. Um, ask that God would bless you this Advent season. See you next Sunday.